Hello everyone. Before we start, I just want to apologize um, regarding on the quality of the recording for this particular episode. I didn't realize it was the room that we were recording the interview was very echoey, and uh, it wasn't until I listened back after getting home and I realized, oops, it was very echoey. And then there was a little bit of issue in regards to the beginning uh, five minutes. There was some editing I had to do, had to cut out some little weird hiccups um, that the recording did. But other than that, um, the rest of the recording is exactly how it should be. So um, I hope you enjoy. Yeah. Bye. And today I have. She is a research, uh, academic researcher in University of Queensland. But I'll let her give. Um, I'll, I'll let her introduce herself a little bit more. So yeah. Yeah. yeah so hey, I'm Athena. Um, I'm actually a PhD student. I'm sorry. So. Um, <laughs> first, I'm so sorry. <laughs> first, that's all right. All good. I mean, I'm almost a researcher. So first year PhD student. Um, and I'm based at the Child Health Research Centre, which is next to um, the Children's Hospital in South Brisbane. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so it's part of UQ. Mm-hmm. And uh, my research looks at concussion, so childhood concussion um, and more severe traumatic brain injuries as well. Um, and looking at using non-invasive brain stimulation to um, improve outcomes for these children after their injury. So essentially after even um, one concussion, um, a lot of children have ongoing problems, um, cognitive problems with attention, working memory, um, they have sleep problems, headaches, that sort of thing. Um, these are called persistent post-concussion symptoms. Okay. Yeah, so my research is specifically looking at using a type of non-invasive brain stimulation called transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS. Oh, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> and basically it involves placing these two sponge electrodes on two different parts of the brain um, and passing a very weak electrical current um, across them, between Uh them, and then the areas of the brain underneath those electrodes um, get woken up kind of thing. Is it like so little that they can't even feel it? No, not really, exactly. So it's a bit of a tingling sensation. Um, It's a very safe technique. There's been a lot of um, safety studies that have been done into it and... That's why it's a good option for children because um, in comparison to some other non-invasive brain stimulation (coughs) techniques, um, some other non-invasive brain stimulation techniques are are quite a bit more, uh, they more directly modulate um, Mm. brain activity. So this one is a little bit less um, direct and it's a bit more gentle and it just causes a bit of tingling. And so we're hoping we're going to use that to sort of wake up some areas of the brain which are important in executive function and cognition that are important for working memory and attention and improve um, the children's symptoms. And then so when we're talking about children, what age bracket are we talking about? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So I'm going to be looking at uh, ages 8 to 17. Okay, so like the preteen to the teen. Yeah, preteen, child, adolescent, and then almost adult, yeah. And then how... So, because I you said concussion before, yeah. Are we talking like a really big head injury, or are we talking about um, like a more like a consistent uh, concussion, like maybe a child constantly playing sport and getting roughed up in the in the sports field? So a bit of both. Um, it can be just one concussion, you know, where you go. A lot of kids play footy, they play soccer, or whatever. They hit their head. Um, sometimes they. They lose, lose consciousness as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of these children um, that have these ongoing symptoms, they only have one concussion. And yeah. it's not an open head injury or anything. They just yeah. bump their head. Some have had multiple. And that also um, increases your risk of having ongoing problems. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Because what... I, I don't know how much... Maybe, maybe you noticed already, but I was doing some reading and it turns out concussion doesn't have to be... A very severe injury it can be I was reading a paper um, not a paper like a news article saying that there is a amount of patients that would get concussion just from 
like shaking, like going on jet skis and then like the constant shaking later on leads to some sort of a c- concussion as well. This was in America. I mean, the, the news before that I read. I mean, is that true where just like a, even like a minor shaking is very fragile to like, you know, like our brain? Mm, that's interesting. I've never heard of that, um, but that is sort of how concussions can happen. If it's a hard enough force, the brain sort of bounces forward and backward and mm. hits the front and the back of the skull. Yeah. Um, and that that is definitely can cause a concussion. Um, I mean, if they were jet skiing and maybe they had really quite severe yeah. um, motion in the yeah. waves. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's sort of similar to something called shaken baby syndrome, which... Um, shaken baby syndrome? Yeah, um, that causes head injuries. Like this, just yeah, like... So, um, it's, it happened a lot kind of earlier on and now people are a lot more aware of it. But mm. when babies were just crying and crying and mothers were getting so frustrated. Yeah, that's the right. Baby, I'm like, oh, please stop crying and shake, shake yeah. the baby. and that caused head injuries in children because their brain shook inside their skull. So what would that, what would that happen? Like, what's the result of that? Does that mean uh, lower in certain part of the, like, this, like what's the effect? Mm. So like, what is it? Shaking baby syndrome. Mm. So what, what, how do you, does it mean that like they can't, I don't know, I'm just going to be blunt, but is, <laughs> are they going to not be able to do certain things, cognitive things like, you know, they don't have finger dexterity or coordination. Like, what, what, what does it lead to? So, I mean, it depends on where exactly in the brain was damaged. Um, yeah. But more like developmental delays, potentially. So, they could have trouble, as I said, concentrating, um, sleeping. Mm. Um, they cry a lot. Yeah. And then that sort of... Because uh, that age, as a baby and as a child and adolescent, they're such critical ages for brain development. If yeah. something is behind, then that can really have impacts for the child's and adult's whole life. Mm. Yeah. And have you brought, in your research, have you brought um, the adults in to see how it has affected them? Or are you just focusing in that 8 to 17 year olds? That's a great question. Um, no, I haven't because, I mean, the nature of a PhD is that you only have a couple of years to do a study. So, yeah. I mean, it would be so interesting to do a, a longitudinal study, as they call it, and having a look at children that yeah. had concussions and following them up. Yeah. There have definitely been studies that have been done. Yeah. So, me personally, no, um, but that would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to, because actually, I've, I'm not academic at all. Even though I'm, I've been to university, but I know nothing about like an academic researcher. What, what does that mean? Like, I, <laughs> like, so are you, when you say you're academic researcher doing your PhD and, you know, are you a, an employee of the university or are you still a student? Like, what does it, like, what does that mean? Yeah, great question. I mean, I didn't even know what PhD or like academic researcher meant when I was still doing my bachelor. So yeah. I was like, what is this world? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, no worry. <laughs> a lot of people, you know, like when I talk about my research, yeah. someone asks, what are you doing? And I say, oh, I'm a PhD student. And I've got to sort of gauge first if they know what that means. So yeah. I'm going to have to. Yeah. I do not. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, going back to that, I mean, that's totally fine. Like, I didn't know either. Um, so basically, I have done a bachelor, and usually you do either honors or a master's. Um, with some research integrated into it. Yeah. Um, I did masters. I did a master of public health, and I did a bit of research in there, mm-hmm. and that gave me um, like during the master period. During yeah yeah uh, yeah, um, and then through that I was able to enroll in a PhD. So I'm still a student technically, mm-hmm. and um, so the government, the Australian government, um, gives well, it's competitive, but they offer PhD um, scholarships. Okay. Um, which is I think at the moment there this year or last year there were twenty eight thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so they cover the cost of your your study and then they pay you that stipend on top. because yeah. you're working, it is a it is a full time job. It's yeah. like you know five days a week. You're in the yeah. lab. Sometimes it's even longer. Yeah. But it's very flexible. So, um, I mean, I can tell you about a standard day or a standard week if you like. Or yeah, I mean, <laughs> so the money that the grant that you get from the government does that does that basically is that basically their way of saying. Here's the money. It should this should cover, you know, whatever equipment or whatever people you need to pay to do the experiment on. 
So not exactly. That money is more to support students to be able to do a PhD because you can't really. Well, people do, but it's difficult mm. to have another job while you're also. So doing is it? So it's a salary technically. So technically, it's a salary. So it's not a grant for your research. Yeah. So that, if you wanted um, a grant for your research, generally what happens is the supervisor um, that has taken you on, mm-hmm. they're going to contribute to what you need but yeah. if you want to do more sometimes you know it's difficult for labs to have funding yeah. so you have to apply for your own grants which is difficult as a PhD student but mm-hmm. not impossible not impossible and okay. so you can get your own grants which then is money you can use for your research not to pay yourself though <laughs> yeah okay so basically oh I see and then in I don't know how much you can say but like because I've always been fascinated because I know I meet a lot of people who are you know they're they're either doing a PhD or they're in their masters doing some sort of research, which I think they hope that leads to, you know, that grant that you're talking about. Um, in your masters leading up to the PhD, the field that you have to do, like so, obviously your your thesis right now, or your research right now, is it technically a thesis or research? Um, it, it's or, research that will lead to a thesis. Okay, yes, so yes. the research you're doing right now. Was that already been done? Was that something that you were already doing in the masters, and then sort of like, or was it just completely different? Completely different. So um, my masters was in public health, which is a very different side of science and health. So yeah. I sort of started in biomedical science, which is you know that cellular molecular yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I finished that, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm. And then I did a master of public health, which is uh, like the policy side of health. So we're looking okay. at policy, government um, levels of health um, environmental health heaps of different things Mm -hmm. and so okay in a way yes because I started researching doing some research in the lab that I'm in now Mm -hmm. um, during my masters but it was sort of separate to my masters so but it was during my masters yeah yeah, yeah, (laughs) um, UQ has this thing um, they have summer research scholarships so if you're a bachelor or a coursework master's student so Mm -hmm. not a research that's another field, but anyway, I was eligible to do this um, mm. to do this summer research project, which yeah. is like a two or three month long research project um, through UQ you do over your summer break. Yeah. And I chose to do it in the lab that I'm in now, doing my PhD. So I was doing a very kind of scientific project during while doing this masters, and it didn't really match up very well. But I knew by that point that I really wanted to go back into that hard science. So that's why I sort of started transitioning back there, uh, which I thought would okay. give me the in to do a PhD in that yeah. field. And so obviously your your goal is to do the research and then be able to do the thesis, which is the PhD part. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and then Dr. Stein. <laughs> One day, maybe. And then just tick it off. <laughs> I, re- I made a joke. I, um, I don't know. If, I don't know if you know, but um, I was working in London for three years just before COVID hit, and then you know you meet all kinds of people, and then <laughs> he, this person that I met, he has a PhD. Um, I can't remember what the field it was, but it was not the. So you know, he he called he he was really adamant that we all had to call him a doctor. <laughs> you know, like that whole that whole you know kerfuffle thing, and then he was like, you know, I'm a doctor, and then. So I, I, was, I said to him, oh, what you're doing, you know, would you be able to come to the school? I, I, I was working there as a teacher. I was like, oh, would you be able to come to the school and maybe even give us, you know, give the kids a bit of a, you know, like experience or talk to them if they have questions about pursuing like the academic side. And he was like, all right, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was talking to the kids about, you know, setting this up. And then the, one of the, basically um, A-level, like the, the equivalent of like a year 12 student said, yeah. so he's a medical doctor I was like oh he's not like the doctor you would go see for health like if you're if your stomach is like hurting during the night you don't ask him like don't go to him and they were just like then why do I I need to call him a doctor I'm like I have no idea man like just I don't know there's so many jokes about that it's like is there a doctor here yes no we need a medical doctor just like the face goes oh no yeah, because I, I and then you know I just think I don't know I think it's a interesting uh, it's almost it's a joke I know like many people make a joke out of it, but I think it's such a interesting like because I personally I, I just can't you know I'm currently doing my masters and then you know it requires a lot of the assignments we have to do it's a lot of like 
referencing and then they get really technical in a master's level and I'm like but I told you where this comes from like and then they're like no it's gonna do it like you know like so I was taught like how to do the APA style yeah and then they said oh this is the seventh edition you're doing the sixth edition yes. I'm like what, what? if you miss a bracket or you yeah, miss I a colon, yeah and I'm like doesn't matter like <laughs> I gave you the source it's right there the journal <laughs> very specific yeah. yeah i mean especially when you're um when you're formatting your papers to submit to a journal i mean they do have their own editors but they ask you to put it like yeah. specifically in this format <laughs> it's almost like these days it takes me i have to spend if it takes me like a week to do the assignment i almost have to give myself an extra day to do all the editing and the formatting and go okay is this, oh i missed the bracket here oh i missed the comma here oh i missed the dash here oh, there's, I don't know. there's a program for that you don't have to do it manually I do want just endnote. You know, yeah, endnote. I do endnote. <laughs> I I either do endnote or I just do it on the um the Microsoft like the way they Word, do it. Yeah. But then because I'm a poor master university student, I only have APA sixth edition, and they're like, it's not good enough. Like, All right, cool. Okay, I will just <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about um actually one topic that obviously I I sent it to you, which is this idea of nurture versus nature specifically in the field of like creativity so in the arts you know in fine art in graphic design in music you know all everything that encompasses the creativity section because personally experience wise i've met students who are naturally talented which means that you know it doesn't require them to be practicing they don't need to really practice because they can sort of like just go by via their per, like their natural ability mm. and some students it's more like they practice their butt off like you know day after day afternoon by afternoon hours by hours and then then, then they get there mm. and i wanted to ask you someone with a more academic background like what you thought what your thoughts is about this you know do you think one is more valid than the other or are they both or is it more individual um take a case by case type of thing so what do you think it's a great question and i think it's a question that a lot of people have you know especially yeah. if we're raising their kids and they're thinking oh you know is the way i raise them going to be going to shape them or um i can relate to what you're saying as well especially in creativity and music and arts you know i did mm. a lot of music when i was at school and yeah. there are some because it's saxophone right yeah saxophone yeah yeah there are some people that I came across and they just, they had perfect pitch, which meant that, you know, they yep. could just... <laughs> I've met them. <laughs> you know, you played a note and they were like, oh, that's an A sharp. Yeah. And they just know. And yeah. 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 And it's, it's amazing, really. It's honestly amazing. One of my saxophone students that I then went on to tutor after yeah. school, she she's definitely has that ability and it's it's really amazing. So I think in that, in that sense... Uh, there are some things that I think personally, I mean, as I said, I'm not an expert on this topic, but I think that there are things um, that you're born with and that yeah. genetics plays a big role, but also nurture, I think, plays, I wouldn't say it's a 50-50, I think yeah. it would depend on the individual, but nurture is definitely very important. Like, that's, when we go back to neuroscience, um, the Hebbian, Hebbian, Hebbian saying, um, which is, Heb was a, uh, scientist back in the day, very famous, and he what's said, his name? Hebbian. Heb, yeah. And How Hebbian, do you spell it? H e double b. And the theory is the Hebbian theory, and he said neurons that fire together wire together. And basically, okay. he's saying the more you practice a skill, the more you do this thing, and the more that these same neurons send signals to each other and connect, the yep. more that um, pathway is reinforced in the brain, and the better you get at it. Okay. So. Um, I mean, they've done heaps of really interesting experiments where they have been able to show that the brain can, re if, you, if you practice something enough, the brain like can rewire itself to, to that. Yeah. So I think going back to creativity and music, um, I think that I don't want to tell the, the kids, if you don't have perfect pitch, you're never going to make it. You yeah, know? exactly. Because yeah. there are so many things that if you practice enough, um, you know, I think you can get very quite far yeah so i think it's a bit of both um, i mean we were always told in science um with diseases for example there sure. are certain things that people have in their genetics but they might not necessarily express themselves or come out unless they're in the right environment 
So it's this interplay. So oh, yeah. Wait, so you're saying that going off the topic, but you're saying so you're saying that with diseases, everyone has them, and it just takes the right context to let that disease come out. So not everybody, but yeah. people have different. Um, Wait, are you talking about like diabetes? That yeah, sort of exactly. Stuff? Yeah. So things like you could have um, diabetes or genes for certain cancers in your family, but yeah. I mean this is still in a way controversial but there has been a lot of research on it um you can have these genes but if you live your lifestyle in a way that for example heart uh, heart disease you yep. could have heart disease in your family but if you live a very um, healthy lifestyle and you exercise, exercise every day, i yeah. mean you're not it, it lowers your chance it doesn't mean you're not going to get it sure but it means that these genes don't have as much of a chance to express themselves and oh, come out i see yeah and you're not feeding that yeah essentially yeah. Oh, okay yeah so that's so but those are the disease that's like so what is it diabetics and sorry diabetes and all, all, diseases. all diseases so all diseases have a hereditary component they yeah. call it um how how much it depends on your genetics yeah. um and they also have a, a environmental component and mm-hmm. that's studied between diseases but yeah. they think that each disease has sort of a different um balance between genetics and like one is more about the environment one exactly. more oh, okay exactly i see so be healthy be healthy, be healthy. <laughs> work hard and be healthy easy, and easy. easy. all right <laughs> it's, it's so easy don't eat that chocolate out of the park <laughs> yeah because i personally so i see a little bit of both in my students um as a when i was head of department and then now from all of that i personally think that and i don't know if you agree with this or not but it's almost like yes it's great that you have a innate talent for say piano playing Mm -hmm. you have innate ability to play piano you have great natural ability with coordination with reading the coordination between your reading and then finger the information you're sending to your fingers and playing your dexterity but there's always an interesting point especially with students who are talented to start with quote-unquote talented and then they hit this barrier whether it's suddenly they can't do they can't play this piece Mm. they can't play with friends or whatever there's a there's a visual and physical barrier they suddenly are facing Mm -hmm. and in my personal opinion that those students tend to go downhill very quickly Mm. if they don't overcome it quickly enough it's almost like you're always you're always at a hundred right because all the materials that people throw at you you can hit it at a hundred you're a hundred 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 and then suddenly the next one is the 200 but you never had to process and comprehend how do i tackle this challenging piece because you've never done it mm-hmm. and then so they either go all right screw this i'm gonna go i'm gonna beat this or they go no i'll go down and then they go bye-bye yeah. right and then which becomes the negative and then, you know it leads them just quitting no matter what you say to them they quit and then they just sort of like i never want to touch this thing ever again mm-hmm. whereas you're looking at the other one where you have someone who grew up not untalented mm-hmm. but you know just your middle row your average level student but have an interest in it you know piano or you know sport exercise whatever you know you name it and then suddenly because they're used to the process of okay this is a new piece of music what do i need to do okay i need to do this this this. it's almost like they're mentally prepared to go okay because i've done so many times i know that i need to do x y z one two three and then and then at the end i put them all together that's the completion right so it's almost like they know how the process works and then they tend to just steadily mm-hmm. climb up that difficult range mm-hmm. i mean not everyone does it but um i think that i don't know i i personally think that maybe the second one where the student just grew up learning how to process the mm-hmm. the journey of it yeah. it's probably it's more valuable for them mm-hmm. because emotionally they can handle it right intellectually they they've done it before 
Whereas the first one, emotionally, usually you, a lot of times they just go, no, nah, screw this, can't do it. Mm-hmm. And then they go, all right, I quit. And you're like, what are you doing, man? Just, just you're right there. Yeah. You just have to do X, Y, Z. No, 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 I don't want to do it. Yeah. But why? Oh, it's and too you hard. can see the talent in them, but they just... Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm a strong believer that these sort of um, persevering behaviors are wired up from when you're a child. Mm. Um, I think... Um, Something that my mum said that yeah. she always, her philosophy when bringing her children up was um, every opportunity is a learning opportunity. So yeah. if you, every, everything you do, you, you get your kid to, to learn something from it and do something. And then I think that really instills that drive. And as you say, like those students are the ones that go far, the ones that have that drive. Mm. And the ones that I think learn to manage um, their learning. Like, mm. I'm sure you know a lot about that sort of thing, like learning styles, yeah. but those children who are aware of how they learn, they, yeah, they definitely can push themselves further, I think. And yeah. I think we should be teaching kids that. Oh, 100%. I cannot agree more because I think these days, it's almost like the school system, the curriculum, like national, like not even national, like globally needs to have a bit of a change because... I feel like these days teaching a child how to handle their emotions is very important, mm-hmm. especially with like, and I don't know if you've come across this in your research, but especially in the digital age, you see, you know, these days it's not just physical bullying you get at school, but it's the cyber bullying or the, the social games, you know, kids know how to play these days, whereas, you know, back in our days, it's like, Oh, he punched me. All right, well, apologize. And then you sort of like, all right, cool, that's sort of done. And in that day, they had to actually get to your house to move. Yeah, 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 yeah. Get mum to drop you off. (laughs) Mum, I got a bully like, you know, James at like five o'clock. Can you drop me off? (laughs) But like, you know, in a way, looking looking back at it, you know, it's almost like like if it was me, I much prefer just go, all right, you know what? If you want to bully me, just punch me. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want this consistent mm. bullying that I'm going to get in the kitchen at home, in the dining table at home, in my bedroom, mm-hmm. in the toilet, in the shower, like whatever. Constant, you're yeah. constantly like going, oh, you're inadequate. You're not good enough. And you're like, oh, that, and I just cannot understand how kids do it these days in, in that sense. Because a lot of, Actually, a hundred percent out of ten out of ten of my schools, all have said you do not bring a phone. If you have a phone, you uh, some schools they just tell them to put it in the bags, and some schools they go, okay, you go, you got to give it to your your teacher or the deputy or whatever, and then you take it, you, you get it after school. And I think that's important, but it's almost like putting the band aid on the on a wound, like it's mm-hmm. it's a temporary thing. But as soon as three o'clock hits the bell, you know, it's like, bam. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, I don't know, I just find it, like, it's hard these days. I feel like, I mean, I don't want to sound like the good old days, you know, mm. but I feel like we were the, one of the last generations to, well, I can't speak for you, but mm. I I didn't spend all day on, on the computer or on my phone. The first mm. time I got a phone, that smartphone anyway, yeah. I was probably... I don't know like 13 14 and my whole childhood where I used to spend playing outside we used to yeah. run in the mud and then I came home for lunch and dinner and yeah it's yeah. kind of sad these days that you know children are just yeah. constantly on their devices yeah. so if you if it was your child in this nowadays mm-hmm. how would you manage that that's a really great question so I mean it's something I've thought about, but I mean, yeah. not seriously, because that's not on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Get that PhD yeah, first, yeah, yeah, yeah. eh? Get that PhD. <laughs> Doctor. <laughs> but I mean, coming from like a child development perspective, yeah. um, I have thought about it and I really love to be out in nature. It's, I yeah. just, I love being sort of out in regional places, mm. out walking, hiking. And I think that um, if I was bringing up a child, I would get as much as possible get them outside and you know we spend the day outside we mm. do things with our hands that's yeah. such a big problem these days i think mm. that children don't learn these practical skills mm. you know you go out and you 
I don't know, like, what do we even do? We just, like, we cut down, we, we lived near, like, a swamp, and we used to, like, walk through this yeah. swamp, and this swamp, and cut down, like, these big papyruses, and make trails, and make maps, and oh yeah, have a compass, and, like, do all that sort of... That sounds like fun. It was so fun. Like, it was a great yeah. childhood. Anyway, so going back to my... <laughs> so I'm reminiscing on my childhood, but... That's right. <laughs> I think, um, like, bringing a child up, I would really place a strong emphasis on being outside, um, you know, doing those things, like, cooking, like... Mm. And... Going back to sort of nature versus nurture, I think there's also an argument there that that biodiversity um, that's such that's so important yeah. growing up. You know, like being exposed to all of those elements outside, and um, that contributes to immune systems. And there's such an interplay between um, your gut and your brain, like this the whole gut brain axis. So oh. there's a lot of research going on that people with healthier guts who you know eat eat healthier, um, exercise more. Yeah. Um, there's a strong link to your your brain's health as well you know like the you can okay. think better things like that and that's something i've noticed in myself like when i really made a conscious effort to exercise every day you know, yeah. i ride my bike to work and yeah, eat well yeah, yeah. and it makes a big difference to my sleep and to everything i mean yeah so sometimes it's difficult i think growing up in a city i sort of grew up a little bit out i grew up mm. um, in the redlands which yeah. is bayside so we had that space to run around outside yeah growing up in sure. the city would make it more challenging for sure but yeah. i think any parent can just do what i said like every opportunity is a learning opportunity and provide your kids with these toys that aren't necessarily on phones yeah yeah but it's so it's so com- it's the norm isn't it like i know it is exactly you just the child at the age of six mm. just two fingers i know tick 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 and then i'm looking and i'm like and then what what's interesting looking at that outside and then looking at it in a classroom context way the way we type right mm-hmm. the qwerty keyboard like the, a lot of like older kids to the point where you're like you should know how to touch type right you should know how to type like proper type yeah two fingers tick, 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 tick. and you're like what are you doing dude like you are not <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah get their thumb and go on there yeah and then just like oh and then when they see me type they're like so how do you do it so quick i'm like okay you're in year eight like your year eight about to be year nine you you need do you need to know how to do this? Yeah. But they can't. I know. They don't know how to use their middle finger, their ring finger, their pinky. It's like, I have this pistol gun. <laughs> I'm just going to like two finger this until the day I die. And I'm like, you need to do better. Yeah. I was a bit of a nerd. I um, used to play typing tournament. That's how I oh, got my Me too. Me too. Skills. Me too. Me too. Right there. I'm right there with you. <laughs> but like, I think it's good that we have and I, I guess it's similar like you said like maybe like people in our social circle is probably like the last generation where we saw the actual change right mm. we saw the change going from being outdoor into the indoor right mm. I mean when I was younger like uh, year 6 year 7 year 8 so what's that that's so 3 years of that 3-4 years like you know until like when you start high school where you you know you need to do assignments and all that sort of stuff and you know love life comes in but like, <laughs> you know if you go out and you just ride your bike no one like my parents some of my parents could not care like you, mm. you coming back yeah, yeah yeah i'll come back cool yeah and now i see like kids like they find have my iphone yeah yeah, yeah 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 find my iphone and then the parents are like okay my child is here but i guess it's like you said it's maybe because there is an option of knowing where your child is all the time so you you need you probably will choose that i'm sure my parents would probably choose that if they had the yeah. option i think it's a product of the time as well yeah. like i mean i think it's it depends where you are but there was <coughs> there have definitely been i think safer times back then and yeah. now me thinking me bringing up a child i would be very anxious if i didn't know where they were all the time but personally do you think it was safer back then like uh, i don't know maybe not, maybe not actually maybe not because uh, yeah. thinking back i'm like there was a lot of times in my <laughs> teenage life where I'm like, oh, like a slight little thing could just like I could get it, I could break my leg, yeah, I could like destroy my entire body from my bike because I did a stupid like little like True. hop or whatever, and I rode like a kilometer or like I don't know five five kilometers away, and I'm like, oh god, you have no phone, I have no phone, yeah, yeah. I have no phone. Like, oh, what am I gonna do? Like, 
go to like a random's house you know it's just like that's actually a really good point remember we used to have the safety houses did you ever have that like what time um, yeah. <laughs> like near my school primary school they always had like in, in the whole area they had some people were, had safety houses so that meant that they had on their letterbox this little yellow sticker oh, that really? said safety house and if you were ever in trouble you could like these were p- police checked people and you could go knock on the door and be like oh so proper police help. check people yeah oh okay so, I was like just a random like no, you like, know pedophile no. like uh yeah here it is I'm, I'm saying like <laughs> I have candy <laughs> It has a safe house. <laughs> but going back to the device thing, I just yeah. want to mention also, I think it can also be used in a good way. Like in mm. schools, if you, oh, if sure. you um, get the right tools on it, and in my research, for example, looking at attention and things, there has been a lot of research that's shown kids who play these games, which will require uh, quick like response responses, and they need to inhibit their responses, like quickly press a button, yep. they may actually have better... Um, like attention and something they call response inhibition, which is, you know, that those reflexes and also um, inhibiting, like your brain's like, oh, check this or or something. And you're be- they're better able to focus on, on things. So that's not every child, but there is some research to show that. So does that lead to better compartmentalization? Or you're... Like, or oh, in a way, maybe. I mean, so there's like, there's two different types of... My, my, my PhD topic is a lot on response inhibition. But there's sort of... Okay, so talk to me. So what is response inhi- inhibition? Yeah, so... In a dumb of, way, because I'm the... Yeah, I'm, I'm, no. I'm the I don't know. <laughs> I think there's sort of two different ways you could look at it. There's that motor response inhibition. So, for example, um, like you're pressing a button and all of a sudden the screen says stop pressing the button and you've got to quickly like... Stop. Okay. And like that's, that's a sort of response inhibition that I'm testing. Like sure. using those sort of tasks uh, cognitive brain training tasks they're almost like yep, yep. and then there's other types of response inhibition like um, right now you might be like oh I really want to check my phone but I'm mm. talking to Athena so mm. don't check your phone oh <laughs> like that's I couldn't care less <laughs> no I'm just saying like, yeah, 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 I'm sure yeah. you're not like that but like yeah, yeah. that's a different type of <laughs> response <laughs> inhibition yeah so maybe like those sort of I was talking more about that motor response inhibition mm. where kids have to like quickly play those games where they got to press the buttons really quickly okay they might have better like coordination that sense or reflexes yeah but, yeah my point was just that if done properly i think technology can be used in a good way mm. yeah. and then so that's the motor side what's the other side so there's always an interplay between the motor side and the cognitive side so inhibition and attention more generally is um an executive function we call it mm. so the front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex it's yep. like around your forehead and a bit further back so that like what near the, over over the ears no not that far back okay. so just sort of like like this sort okay of oh, front, like just your forehead sort of yeah. area um that's the prefrontal cortex and that's yeah. very important for um our higher cognition so decision making um planning attention all those things analytical um, exactly and okay. that's and that's the last part of the brain that develops so that's why children you know you as your parents always say to you you know you, you don't think those two steps ahead your brain isn't like developed yet you can't they still think say that to risks. me <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about lady like that still happened to me mom's like you don't think too far it's right there <laughs> so yeah those are the last things that develop so which is why i mean i keep going back to my research but that's yeah, yeah, why sure. like, concussion and traumatic brain injury um in childhood and even early um, adulthood because it doesn't really mature until your mid to late 20s yeah um that's why it's so it's such a big deal because um so in a trauma in a concussion anyway it sort of affects your whole brain in a way because your brain gets a bit shaken in your skull okay so there's all these little pathways between different areas of the brain and they get damaged so and it okay if if it gets damaged sorry Mm -hmm. to cut you off no if it gets damaged is it uh, is it not fixable not not right but is it are they able to heal over time or is it like it's gone you, you can't no it's not gone so the, the brain is quite um plastic it's got neuroplasticity we call it meaning that as i was saying before the more you use um a part of the brain mm. um the more that it can um the more that it gets reinforced so that means that if there's um, something that gets damaged, your brain is, you're able to relearn. So there has been okay. so many studies, like really interesting studies of, um, what are the names of those books? There's a lot of books. Um, anyway, it'll come to me later. But mm-hmm. people who have had head injuries, they've had a 
tumor, for example, yeah. or something like that, and they lose a, they completely lose a function, yeah. and then they're able to relearn it. But like they just their brain sort of forms alternative connections. So there was a really famous study that they did to demonstrate this neuroplasticity, and okay. they got um, monkeys because yeah. they can't do it in humans, and they because it's inhumane. It's, yeah, the okay. ethics. Sure. Um, and they. I think they stitched their fingers together, but anyway, they basically they two of their fingers like the like this like yep. the, two, the so the the middle, middle finger to the, the ring finger. finger yeah they they made it in a way that they couldn't separate them okay so and they left it like that for a long time and they did when know, we say a long time are we talking about years or months or I just think it was months um, okay don't quote me on this but okay, I would sure. say like months okay maybe a year or something like that okay. and they would do like their brain imaging maybe it was MRI yep <laughs> obviously I'm not an ex- expert on this study no, it's fine. coming through but anyway their brain um, the maps kind of changed so that meant that um, the area of the brain there, w- there was sort of two distinct areas of the brain that that um, controlled the middle finger and controlled that ring finger but over time because they weren't moving separately they sort of became one area in the brain the way it, it mapped to the finger that part wow. of the brain controlling that was sort of one area so there have been heaps of studies and that sort of thing like people That's who cool. yeah like learning a language is a great example so people who have well children who learn languages but mm. also people who have um, brain tumors or brain injuries and it affects that part of the brain which yeah. controls language yeah um and they just completely lose maybe they spoke a couple languages they can lose one language or they can lose all their languages or something but they can relearn that and that part of the brain is and that's going back to your head theory where if you constantly throw yeah what's the word neurons that fire together wire together and this plasticity is a lot greater in children so while they're developing there's a lot more um, connection you can form those connections easier which is why they say that learning a language is easier when you're I a child see. as you get older um, they think that scientists think that in like into adolescence and into adulthood mm-hmm. the brain actually does something called synaptic pruning synaptic pruning pruning yes yeah. so the synapses um, are the parts of the neurons that connect to each other essentially so when the neurons the brain cells yeah are sending like signals yeah they well they don't exactly connect but they send electrical signals between each other sure through the synapse so the synapses are essentially the connections between okay. the neurons so the actual connection that's the word for it yeah okay synapse yeah so, um where was I going with this? Synapses. Um, yeah, synaptic pruning. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, as you get older, your brain actually cuts back those connections because mm. um, it needs to um, sort of focus the energy into, into... Like you can't... As a kid, you have... Um, you learn all these skills, you do all these things, but as you get older, the brain really wants to streamline its energy use and it wants to focus the connections on the areas that you're actually using. Which is why that children can learn so much easier, but then yeah. as you get into adulthood, there's not as much plasticity okay. sort of happening. But is that also due to the fact that when you get to adulthood, you've experienced probably like what you need to have experienced by then? You mean like from a developmental sort of yeah. instinctual, like yeah, so like if you're evolutionary like, perspective, yeah. You mean? Yeah, so like if you're, well, I don't know, I don't know if it's evolutionary perspective, but like, you let's use language for example, right? So yeah. personally, I speak three languages, English being the last one, mm-hmm. and um, how do I say this correctly? It took me being physically being in the country, an English-speaking country, to actually understand. Mm-hmm how to form a sentence mm. right and even then like it took a while mm. so like when we were um so when we were in in high school like it didn't take it took, it literally took me until graduation until like about year year 12 mm. where i realized oh so this is how you form a sentence mm-hmm. because before then i could have a conversation with you of course but in proper communication how i can pr- communicate my ideas to you that didn't come until year 11, year 12. And so, and I, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but like, is it, I know that you're saying, what is it, uh, brain plasticity? Plasticity, yeah. If an adult right now, so say like, I don't know, 30, 40 year old, male, female, whatever, 
if they get thrown into a country they have never touched before, so say take Japan or, or Russia, they have to speak a complete mm-hmm. non-Latin root language. <laughs> do you, so is a sign saying that they can do it, but it will just take a longer time, or they can't do it? It'll take a longer time than if you threw a five-year-old in there for sure. I see. Like the, if you put a five-year-old and a thirty-year-old into this new country, yeah. Um, the child, the, the five-year-old child, would pick it up faster. They mm. might have an ac- less of an accent. Um, yeah. It would be much easier for them. Yeah. Oh, okay. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah. So how many? So do you do you speak another language? Um. Yes. Uh. So. Technically, funny story actually. Yeah, go on. Um, Greek is my first language because my mum's Greek. Malaka, eh? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I <laughs> that's the only word I know. Amazing, great, great pronunciation. Great. Uh, but anyway, so Greek was my first language, but I actually forgot it because once I got into sort of preschool and school, I was like, oh, mum, you know, no one speaks Greek here. Like, I don't want to speak yeah. Greek, and so I just refused to speak Greek, which yeah. is such a shame. And then I lost it, but. Um, then I sort of, I learned German because um, okay. my dad's German. Okay. So I learned German uh, during school and yeah. it sort of came a bit easier to me. But I've noticed that like when I speak German and when I speak sometimes when I go to Greece and I get yeah. a bit of Greek out. So just for context, so you you can speak both languages on a conversational level? Not Greek. So Not I can Greek. speak German okay. on a conversational level. Yeah. Obviously I speak English. Like um, you can go to the country and get around like yeah. no problem. Yeah. Yep. Fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, Obviously, if I've spent a couple of weeks there, it's going to be a lot better than if yeah. I got there right now. Yeah, but of course. It's I've just I've found this really interesting that when I go back to Greece and um, after a few weeks I get back into it and I'm able to speak a little bit of Greek. When I speak Greek, it comes from like a different part of my brain than when I speak German. It's it's hard to explain, but when I speak German, I have to translate. I think oh, this word in English. What's the word in German? When I speak Greek. I, I don't translate it's just sort of like there yeah not that i can really speak greek but what i do know it's just there <laughs> so the way my sister and i and all the um the asian australian community like all the people around my age were saying that like it's always there we all we can always speak mandarin like not a problem but it's like wait it's similar like if i have to if i say if i learned another language mm-hmm. it'd be like right click translate yeah and right click save as uh, English and then save in this file and then like pull it up like and you know what I mean it, yeah. and then retrieve it yeah. yeah is that sort of what you what you mean by that's German what I mean. that's what I mean yeah. exactly whereas I think and that comes down to from my sort of understanding of the neuroscience of languages when you learn these um, the languages mm. as um, an infant well you hear them as an infant and yeah. you learn them as a toddler and it's a lot more ingrained um, in your brain when you learn it later so let me ask you this do you have a weird comfort and familiarity when you hear greek yeah yeah definitely same, I, same with german but yes definitely with greek yeah because i this this is so where, where i grew up so um we didn't come to australia till we were about year seven okay so we spent so our time in, in so in our country in taiwan and then mm-hmm. where i grew up there was this um like a like a car where they sell you know like snacks and stuff, mm. and then the, the the gentleman there you know the, an older gentleman, he's a bit of a foul mouth, mm. and he would just say you know like rude stuff and then mm. like just you know swear you know in Mandarin and all that sort of stuff. So to this day, whenever I hear oh sorry not Mandarin he would swear in Taiwanese, mm. which is uh, like a uh, you know Hakka. It's like a, it's, it's just another dialect. So basically, and then completely different to Mandarin. But anyway, mm-hmm. the point is, to this day, when I hear someone swears in Taiwanese or Hakka, I'm like... Just feel like comfortable. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I know you're shouting at me, and but it's okay. Like, keep going. Because I, I, I feel I'm, 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 I'm comfortable, you know? But whereas, like, you know, if someone, you know, in English, you know, if someone off the road just, you know, starts swearing off in, in my direction, I'm like... You know, I I get that. Oh, like like this is this is a negative mm. situation right here. But like, you know, like every time, yeah, it's weird. But then, the only thing that I still do, I still say, like I still think in Mandarin. So yeah, uh, I'm 28 now. So now, when I think and process things, mm-hmm. at least in Australia, I'm sure if I go back to my country, like like 
like you said, like it will change,、mm. right? But number, it's still the only thing I have to do with in Mandarin.、Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a、numbers、research that. Hey. What did you say? Numbers. Numbers. Yeah. yeah so yeah. whether it's buying food from the restaurant、yeah. or grocery shopping, like like dollars and things like that, cents or just numbers in general,、mm. I always have to do it in Mandarin, and then like internally translated. And then English, so that's what I mean by like the right click, save as that yeah, type of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, whereas nowadays, when I can, when I want to think about things, or you know, I guess use my analytical side of my brain, I can do it in English. But it took me a while to do that. Is there is there a reason you, you think that, or that you know why I would do it in Mandarin in numbers?、Mm, that's so interesting that you say that because、um, so I was, as I said, I was speaking Greek when I was little. The last thing that I stopped, last thing that Sort of stayed with me was numbers. I used to count to ten in Greek、yeah. in my head as well.、And、How do you count the Greek in ten? So what? Oh no! I, <laughs> I don't want my terrible Greek accent to be broadcast across the world. All right, all right, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Sorry, continue. <laughs> Not that I can't, but you know, no, no, I'll、fine. be disgraced to my. <laughs> my mum will hear me and be like, "What happened to you?" <laughs> anyway,、um, I think when just. Now maybe it's because numbers are one of the first things you learn. Like you learn to、mm. count one, two, three. You learn to count to ten,、yeah. and because that was one of the first things you learn, it's just so just ingrained in your head. Maybe. Yeah. So Greek is your first tongue, mother tongue.、Mm. Yeah. And then. But like, I mean, I wouldn't consider it like if someone was like, "What's your first language?" I don't generally say Greek because、uh-huh. I can't speak it anymore. But、yeah. like technically, it was.、Yeah. This is more of a personal question, but like in in your. Family like your parent, your mom and dad obviously one's Greek and one's German.、Mm-hmm. Then this is this is just a personal anecdote, but like, do you find that it's do you find your parents were they forcing you to speak the tongue like their like as your first language? Because I find that a lot of、um, you know second third generation immigrants coming to Australia,、mm. especially from you know the Europe. The Europe side of the world, like they don't, they don't tend to retain that mother tongue. Like whether it's Italian, French, German,、um, what's the other one?、Uh, what's the other one? Spanish. Spanish. Thank、yeah. you. Maybe Spanish a little bit more,、mm. but I find that it's very different in the Asian culture where we have to like. I would I would comfortably say like most Asian countries like from Korea all the way down to. Um, Vietnam over there on the on the left, like the people, they want to have their kids speaking in the native tongue, like the, where the, where wherever they originated from.、Mm-hmm. Was it like was it that sort of pressure on in on you, like from your parents? That that what you that point that you make is something that I've noticed a lot actually.、Um, I don't think that there was really a pressure, and maybe that's why it didn't stick with me. So、mm-hmm. I think my dad did speak German a little bit to us, and like we're sort of.、Um, I was gonna say subjective, but I mean like not subjective. Like it was around us kind、mm-hmm. of thing.、Um, with Greek, I think that's why I forgot it because you know my mum was trying to like get me to speak it, but I was、yeah. just like no, no, no. And like, I mean to her credit, she really tried, but I'm a stubborn person. And <laughs> looking back, I wish I really wish that、yeah. I kept with it. But I think it also depends on your sort of family dynamic. So、yeah. if you have other family members like grandparents yeah, and stuff yeah. here. Um, as well, that gives you more of an incentive to learn it. But、sure. um, so my grandparents are all over in Europe.、Um, yeah. So they, well, when they were alive, they were in Greece and in Germany. And so I only saw them once every three years or so. So oh well.、Um, it was only really my mum and my dad who were speaking those languages. So I didn't have as much of an incentive, I think. Yeah. But that being said,、um, especially in the Greek community, community there、yeah. are a lot of people who.、Um, They they pass the language onto their kids. So my mum's a Greek interpreter. Okay. So she goes into、oh. hospitals mainly、um, and does paper translations as well. And so she interprets for these people who have doctor's appointments、yeah. and they don't speak the language.、Yeah. And there is such a big Greek community which still doesn't speak English <laughs> and they've just、yep. survived. Oh yeah, exactly. So if you have your grandma and your mum and everyone there and they don't、yeah. really speak English and then you're sort of forced to speak、yeah. that language. But yeah, that wasn't really the case for me. So I think that's why I didn't learn it. Yeah. And are you? Is is your family heavily heavily involved in that community in that Greek community? I would say not really. Like in that Western area. 
Yeah, not really, actually. And I think that also plays a big role. If we, mm. if my mum had put me into Greek school, like a lot of families yeah. do, they put their kids into Greek or school. Or she's got like a Greek girlfriend that comes exactly. over or whatever. And yeah. that didn't really happen. I think um, my parents were both uh, quite like focused on their jobs and their career. Yeah. And so I think in a way we didn't get as much of that cultural exposure. Mm. And that's something that I've, I have really tried to make up for it. Like I'm yeah. not, it's definitely not my parents' fault. Like it's really difficult. Mm. You're moving over to a different country and you're really trying to adopt this country's yeah. um, standards and whatever. But Culture, exactly, the, you know, exactly. the way they live, you know, it's completely different. Exactly. So, I mean, but growing up, it is something that I've become quite um, like cognizant of that I don't want to lose my cultural background. So yeah. I have gone over to Greece and Germany by myself mm. um, a few times and just trying to get that culture. Yeah. So... The lockdown restriction has been rough on you then? Oh, it has been a bit rough. I used to be an avid traveller. I used to save up all my money, work all term, and then just like <laughs> take off and the holidays. And what's your What's going to be your ne- your your first place to visit once you once sort of opens back up? It'll be Europe for sure. Yeah. Um, probably either Greece or Germany to see my family. But yeah. um, for a non-family holiday. I really love the Alps sort of area, so oh, yeah. I haven't been to Switzerland, that's the top of my list, but I really, really love Austria, like Salzburg, that sort of area. So You're a winter person then? Oh yeah, somewhat. I mean, if I say that I'm a winter person, my friends will laugh at me because I get cold very quickly and very easily, but... <laughs> doesn't matter, you still can, you can still enjoy the cold, just put the fireplace on. I, yeah, I, I enjoy it, like that right? seasonal variation. Yes. That, like here, it's a bit, you know, the seasons are a bit monotonous in a way. It's... Super hot on and not so hot. Yeah, and so <laughs> humid. And, oh, I think that's why my favorite place, one of my favorite places in Australia, is Tasmania because it does actually have that seasonal variation. Yeah. Did you hear about it was snowing? Yeah, in Cradle like, Mountain, like last week. It last just, week, out of nowhere, just snow. Yeah. And my friends were like, "It looks like Europe," and I was like, "Yeah, it does." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should go down. Yeah. Beautiful down there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully we can. Yeah. We can we can get there. So how long to finish off? How long is your um, how what's the remaining? Do you still have a year left of your research? Um, more. <laughs> Two, three, four. So I only started in October last year. So okay. PhD goes for three years, sometimes four. Mm. So I mean, a couple, a few more years, three more years maybe. And then you is a. Is it your day-to-day job? Actually, I never got to ask you your day-to-day job. But does it? So what does that day-to-day look like? Does it mean that you have to constantly book? Uh, uh, not lab rats, but like like animals or people, book people into like, do experiment? Or yeah, so my day-to-day is very variable. I don't have a set nine-to-five schedule. Um, yeah. So at the moment, in the, in the phase that I'm in, I'm writing my protocol, it's called, which is basically like the aims, the hypothesis, the what you're going to do for the next one or two years of your study. You're just reminding me of my science report back in the day. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, <sorry. laughs> yeah, except this is like a 120-page document. Oh, God! So, so um, <laughs> next week I'm submitting it to... Um, you have to submit it to an ethics body. So we have the Child Health Queensland, Children's Health Queensland um, Ethics Committee. To go through it? Yeah, so yeah. I'm submitting that. And if, if it gets ticked off, then hopefully I will start my study in about July, August this year. And then I'll start recruiting my um, participants for my study. Oh, so technically you haven't started yet? Not, no, not my own research. So I've, oh. the past six months I've been, you know, the first six months of your PhD, six months to a year, you're just reading, read so much literature and... To, to support your... Yeah, okay. I had to come up with my with my study idea yeah. in, in coordination with my supervisors. Yeah. And so my day-to-day, um, I read some papers, I'm writing up this protocol, um, I help out with some other studies that our lab is doing. So we have okay. some other non-invasive brain simulation studies. So the participants come in and I'm actually helping with those participants. Yeah. Um, what else? Like just chatting to... We have some honours students who are doing their honours year of research. So helping them. Hierarch- hierarchical rise. Uh, Hierarchy-wise, <laughs> are they below you? I mean, technically, yes. Yeah, but they're not, that's they're, right. No, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> they're, they're smarter than me in many ways. Um, so <laughs> You're very polite. They're not my little minions. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're very polite. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, very variable. But I like that. I like that it's so flexible. And I mean, some researchers, mm. they can really choose their hours. They come in at 7am if they want to or 10am and then they finish at whatever, 2pm, 3pm, 7pm. Oh, so it's very uh, person individually driven. Depending on uh, your lab. I mean, okay. it depends like what. Yeah. Um, but and when you say a lab, mm. 
Is it the same lab I'm thinking in my head? No. Okay. So, all right. All right. Uh, that terminology, we're more of a group. So that's actually, that's a, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought it up because you have those really, they're called wet labs, like scientific labs that they have pipettes and they, you know, like when they're doing molecular research and... Sounds cool. That's some Iron Man. That's some Avengers stuff. <laughs> like they get their pipette and they take their solution and they run tests on it. And oh, and then spin genetics. that. Genetics. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, real genetics, like cloning, all those things. That's, that's, cool. that's a wet lab. That's a real lab. Yeah. So what I'm doing, um, and they might have animals, they might, whatever they're doing. Yeah, sure. Um, what I'm doing is more, we're more of a group, I guess, because mm-hmm. we're, when I say lab, we do have a lab. We have the kids' stim lab, it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just a room, a couple rooms, and we have all our brain stimulation equipment in mm-hmm. there. Um, that's a lab. So basically you have the primary investigator or like the chief sort of the head of the lab. Yeah, the boss man. The boss man. Boss lady. Lady, she's a lady. Oh yeah, boss lady. Sorry, <laughs> boss lady. Um, and, take, and then you would um, generally have a couple, maybe one, two, depending on how big your lab is, sure. you have many, many researchers as mm. well, like people who have finished their PhD and they're now researching in their career. Yeah. And you might have a couple of PhD students mm-hmm. and then you might have a couple of these honours students. So I sort of, that was the technical hierarchy that I just worked yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's fine. Next time I'll be like, you're honest. Okay, you're a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> know your place. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Athena. I really appreciate you talking to thank me. Thank you for it was, uh, it was like an hour already. Oh. Yeah. And I just have to yeah. say, if you're interested, I do have a science blog. I'm yeah, really go on, yeah, go, go, go. Um, so I have to plug myself here. Yeah, yeah, go, go, go. Um, I love science communication and I'd love to get um, into that. So my blog is stimulatingneuroscience.com. And basically I talk about my this PhD diaries, PhD diaries. Uh-oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, like my, my life is like, <laughs> it's pretty cheesy. That's all right, My it's life as a, as a PhD student and then I also write um, about like brain stimulation in a way that hopefully everyone can understand to sort of spread the science. Okay. So yeah. what's it called again? PhD, it's PH called, diary? No. So it's called stimulating neuroscience, like www.stimulatingneuroscience.com. Go, let's go, go read it guys. <laughs> and I have Twitter too. So connect with me. Yeah. Sounds great. And she's got LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. I've got everything. Yeah. Thank you very much. Athena. Thank you so much for having me. It was so All fun. Right. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs>